I went to a place called Koh Phangan in Thailand. You know, I was just a travel bum, just seeing the world. And I got really drunk. It was the millennium night. And somehow I'd found a bottle of red wine on the beach, which is a, is a very rare find in Thailand because you just don't get red wine over there. So I caught, that was cause for celebration. I think I necked the whole bottle very quickly and was rolling around in the sand like a chicken schnitzel. But anyway, the next thing I knew, I had blown my finger off with a firework at about four o'clock on the millennium night. I remember looking down and just seeing my hand was just covered in blood and shouting out, I'll never play the piano again. But <laughs> I'd never actually played the piano. Still, I was joking, even in that moment of absolute horror, I still managed to get a good, uh, get the laugh, which was kind of always my aim. And yeah, that event just led into my classic legendary story of me blowing my finger off in Thailand on the millennium night. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Now here at Tribe Sober, we enable people to change their relationship with alcohol and then go on to thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last five years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really, really hard to change your drinking alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. Each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. Here's a lady from one of our WhatsApp groups. Having a tribe full of people who are sober or trying to get sober really helps you to understand the magnitude of your situation and it helps you to understand that you're not alone. It's not crazy that you're in this situation, but most importantly, it helps you to see that it's not impossible to quit drinking because a lot of people in our sober tribe have kicked the habit. And once you see that they've kicked the habit for a period of time, you realize that you can do it too. And you're motivated to do it. And I'm doing it. So if you'd like to join our community and get a bit of support, just go to tribesober.com and click on join our tribe. Now this week, my guest is Vicky Vanstone. She's a Brit who is now living in Australia. Vicky was a binge drinker, and her identity was pretty much as a party animal. However, like many young women, Vicky found the transition from party animal to stay-at-home mom a very difficult one. But not only did she manage to ditch the drink herself, but she's now inspiring other moms to do just that. Let's have a listen to her inspirational story. So my name is Victoria Vanstone. Most people in Australia call me Vic. I'm 
44 years old. I live about an hour north of Brisbane. I'm originally from the UK, as you can probably tell by my accent. Um, I've been here 11 years, married to a fellow Brit, um, and I have three children who are two, five and nine. Um, so I'm not only navigating sobriety, I'm also navigating that zigzaggy journey that is motherhood as well. So yeah, so those two combined have forced me into writing a blog, uh, which is called Drunk Mummy, Sober Mummy. Um, yeah, and I'm sort of trying to be a bit of a advocate for alcohol-free living nowadays. That's kind of what I've fallen into, it seems. So yeah, and I love living here in Australia, love love the outdoor life here and, you know, really, really enjoying what I'm doing now. So yeah, it's great to be here with you, Janet. Thanks for inviting me on. Awesome. Uh, when I moved to South Africa, which was uh, almost 20 years ago now, from the UK like you, I remember arriving here and I thought, oh, this is just like the, the UK in that everybody sits around here drinking their wine, only here the sun is shining on you as well. Yeah. So I was, I was deeply impressed with the South African uh, drinking culture. I just wondered how Australia drinking culture compares well, I, I guess my life plan was to always feel like I lived somewhere that was a holiday. But I guess I didn't relate the fact that when I was on holiday, I was always drunk. <laughs> it was kind of my excuse to get stuck in earlier on in the day. So, yeah, living somewhere like this probably does make you drink more because there's always something to celebrate, which is the sun being out. <laughs> I mean, I didn't need many excuses, to be honest. It could have been the opening of an envelope, but I find that drinking culture here is very, very similar to in England. I mean, there's a pub culture here. It's, they call them hotels. It's more like you, the people here are a bit more um, healthy in some ways. There's a lot more out, outdoor activities going on, a lot more surfing, but surfing and beer culture is definitely a thing. Um, yeah, so it's very, very similar, similar humour, similar background. Obviously, they're from England already, a lot of them, so the culture with alcohol is is almost exactly the same. It's a problem, like it is yeah. in most places in the world. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so interesting, Vicky, what you said about celebrating the sun being out, because we were like that in the UK, weren't we? It was such a rare event when the sun came out. We just had to get out there and celebrate and, and hear yeah. the sun's out. Almost but then all we the could. Time. But then I was I'd find myself commiserating because it was raining, so it didn't really make any difference the weather, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so when did you start worrying about alcohol? Because my experience is, you know, I had this little nagging voice in my head for years and years, but I had no idea how to do it, so I just ignored it, <laughs> carried on drinking. When did you start to worry? Well, like you, Jenny, I ignored it for years. I just thought drinking was who I was. It was basically my entire personality was, was soaked in alcohol. So I never looked outside of it because I didn't know another way of being. I just thought I'm a party girl and this is who I am and this is what I love doing. Um, after I had my first child, I a sort of um, something sinister kind of in interfered with my hangovers. I'd, I'd always had terrible hangovers, but I always soaked them up with a Bloody Mary and a bacon sandwich down the pub the next day with some hilarious stories. But after I had my first child at 34, so I, I had a good 20 years of binge drinking in that time, but at 34, I woke up um, after a big night out 
And yeah, I started to feel really hugely anxious, um, full of guilt, full of shame because I wasn't capable of looking after my child that day. For the first time, I had a baby crying in the room beyond my hangover. And that caused some repercussions for the first time ever and made me, I guess, become sober curious and start questioning my drinking habits. Yeah, because it's a whole journey, isn't it, from when you become sober curious and gradually you move towards towards making that change. It's not something that happens overnight. But uh, uh, what you said about you thought that was who you were, I think, I mean, I'm a bit like that too. I think a lot of us, our whole identity gets mixed up with alcohol. And my, my first story, you mentioned stories, was at the age of 25 when I woke up one morning in London in hospital and it... I had no idea why I was there, what I was doing there, but I drank to blackout the night before and almost drowned in my bath. You know, it was a real drama. I was completely wow. oblivious to it all. But that that should have been my, my wake-up call, but it wasn't. I just turned it into a story and we all used to laugh about it. You know, did you hear about Janet nearly drowning in her bath? Ha, ha, ha. And, oh, you know, when I, when, I, when I think, but I think, my God, you know, what an idiot. But at the time... We just we just turned it into a story, and uh, I see you had something like that. Tell me about Thailand and the fireworks. Well, it's amazing how many stories I could reel off to you right now. I mean, how <laughs> many wake up calls do you need to you know take attention? Uh, I, it, it probably was thousands, but the main ones I would say. I mean, there was a drink driving offence in when I was eighteen, which I feel terrible about. I'd, I'd moved the car from one parking spot to another. And got and got done for drink driving, which was terrible. And then when I went travelling, I I went to a place called Koh Phangan in Thailand. You know, I was just a travel bum, just seeing the world. And I got really drunk. It was the Millennium Night, and somehow I'd found a bottle of red wine on the beach, which is a is a very rare find in Thailand because you just don't get red wine over there. So. I caught that was cause for celebration. I think I necked the whole bottle very quickly and was rolling around in the sand like a chicken schnitzel. But anyway, the next thing I knew, I had blown my finger off with a firework at about four o'clock on the millennium night. I remember looking down and just seeing my hand was just covered in blood and shouting out, I'll never play the piano again. But <laughs> I'd never actually played the piano. Still, I was joking, even in that moment of absolute horror, I still managed to get a good, uh, get the laugh, which was kind of always my aim. And yeah, that event just led into my classic legendary story of me blowing my finger off in Thailand on the Millennium Night, which I was, kind, it was kind of like a badge of honour, like, look how mental I am. And as you say, you look back on these things like you nearly drowning in your bath. I remember writing a list of all these things yeah. once and and saying and then adding the words not okay. So drowning in the bath, not okay. Blowing a finger off in a with a firework, not okay. And there were hundreds of them. Yeah. There were hundreds of things that I'd always laughed off that I thought were funny. And actually when I wrote them down and looked at them, it was a you know, it was not a nice list. It was not okay. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yeah, yeah, we're big on lists in our, our workshops. We, we say to people, make two lists, make the why list. Why are you doing this? You know, someone like yourself, obviously for your children and your future. 
But also we say, uh, write the blacklist. And that's exactly the list that says drowning in the bath, blowing my finger off. Just write those things down. And then when you're yeah. tempted, you, you look back and you think, do I really want to be in that place again where I do these mad things? So, yeah, I also wrote that list. And I was sober when I wrote my list. And it was pretty long. And then uh, I remember the next few days I kept thinking, oh, I must write that one down. <laughs> <laughs> like having other stories Things springing to mind yeah. awful traumas that suddenly seep into your head the next day after a heavy night out I mean I used to try and block them out by like going down the pub again probably <laughs> not the best way to deal with things in those days hey so Vicky were you drinking um I'm talking about, about more recent years now before you made the change were you drinking daily or was it more of a binge drinking situation or both what was your thing definitely Definitely a binge drinker. Yeah, I I never have been someone who would drink alone. I was always a socially acceptable drinker. So you would never have picked me out of the crowd, perhaps, and said I had a problem. My drinking was absorbed into my community. It was uh, diluted by everybody that I surrounded myself with. So therefore... You couldn't have said that I was uh, an alcoholic because everybody around me is doing the same thing. It was a very culturally, socially acceptable drinking habit, which is what I talk about a lot about this kind of grey area drinking where people can get a bit stuck because it is so normalised. Totally, yeah. And I always say that alcoholism is a spectrum. You know, at one end we've got non-drinkers, at the other end we've got the homeless man in the park and people like you and yeah. me, we think, well, we're not homeless in the park. We're fine, you know. And we kid ourselves, don't we, even though it's getting worse over the years. So talk, yeah. talking of normalisation, I mean, this mummy juice thing is, is huge here in South Africa. Wine is seen as a kind of essential parenting aid over here these days. What's it like over there? It's exactly the same. Um, I think there's a there's a period of time that isn't often discussed for mums, which is when you're someone like me who was a party girl who then has a child, there's a huge transition there, which I think where this actually stems from, this mummy memes and this problem with with escaping with alcohol, escaping the mundaneity with alcohol, is because for me, when I was younger, I was independent, I could do what I wanted to do, I knew I always wanted to have children, but when it actually happened, the transition for me was very, very hard. I went from being out all the time to being stuck at home with a crying baby on my own, very isolated. I mean, my husband was working all the time and he was there for me 100% when he could be. But those days going from, you know, being that girl, being that party girl to being this person with wraps and nappies and washing to do and surfaces to wipe. It just wasn't me, to be honest. And the only way I knew how to get out of that, how to escape and how to relieve myself from all that boredom was to go out and get hugely drunk. And I really do believe that that is where this all stems from. It's from people not particularly enjoying motherhood as much as they thought they would and feeling like they need to escape it and yeah so that culture that mummy wine culture over here in Australia is rampant I would say and actually it's that I was in that culture so I I understand it that you feel like you need a release from 
from the day and you feel like that's going to be your reward and take away all of the rubbish that you've been dealing with because you're not used to dealing with that rubbish because you're used to being an independent person. So it's really combined. Those two situations are really are really a, a, a collaboration of two worlds. And it's a really interesting topic. I, you know, I'd love to find out more about about how you recover from it and how you can help people before they get mm. themselves into that straight into that place because I definitely think there's something to be said for maybe women have having more of um some training into what it's like being a mum what it's like being isolated how you can have other ways more healthy ways of dealing with that isolation that loneliness and that stress instead of turning to booze yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And just as alcohol is uh, normalised and glamorised, so is motherhood, isn't it? When we when we want children and we're pregnant for the first time, we have. Well, I used to have all these little fantasies of what it'll be like, and the reality is, wow, you know, as you say, you've gone from this independent person doing what on earth he wants and working in an interesting job as well, maybe. And then suddenly you're stuck at home, you know, and it's it's and you've got a huge responsibility, obviously, for another life. So you've got that. But also a lot of it is, is very mundane. And uh, so all of those things, mm-hmm. aren't they? All of those things you're saying is like one thing on top yeah. of another. So not only are you alone, you're trying to deal with new things. You're you know, you're looking after a whole new life. There's other chores involved. There's other jobs involved. You've left the old you somewhere in the past and you're sat there wondering where on earth that person has gone. So therefore, there is an answer in those situations. And it's just to get a little bit pissed and go, actually, I don't care about any of it anymore. And that's how we deal with it. And that message later on as we go through our lives with our children that message that we're numbing them out because they're annoying isn't the right message and that drinking culture that mummy wine culture has to change because that is not the right message for our children no because what we're doing is we're avoiding connecting with them aren't we because I've had lots Absolutely. of... Absolutely. I've worked with lots of, of moms and they say to me, oh, well, I get home from work, you know, they have a busy, responsible job. And then uh, they say, and then, you know, I have to do the, the child's tea and bath and put them to bed. And I just can't wait to get them to bed so that I can open my wine and relax for the first time all day. And uh, you, you can so understand that. But as far as the child's concerned, it's, oh, you know, mum's not reading me a bedtime story again because she's too yeah. tired, this kind of thing. So it really has have long-term effects on, on one's relationship with the children, I think. What I realised was that when I was in bed hungover each Sunday after having kids, I mean, I did that routine where I was suffering with anxiety and, and being a shit parent, basically, for about four years until the birth of my daughter and I got drunk again. But in that four years, I realised that every time I was hungover, hiding in my bedroom, unable to move my head and just running backwards and forwards to be sick in the toilet, I realised that when I'm there, my children are going about their day with their dad without me. And therefore, if we really took it down to the nitty gritty, they don't feel my love on that day. Mm-hmm. And that's not a good thing. My children can't feel love from me when I'm like that. And I mean, that's what really checked, turned me into a sober person because I just I just couldn't deal with that anymore. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're right. We need to find a way to, to kind of maybe warn the new mums, you know, that it's it's going to be quite a tough time. And what we found is that by building a, a community of people that, you know, have an issue with alcohol and now they want to stop, 
that that really helped. So maybe, you know, you need a community of new mums, whether they've got a drinking problem or not, because you need to reach out, don't you? And, and just say, oh, I've had yeah. such a rubbish day, you know, I'm dying for a drink or whatever. I think the problem is there is that because it is this grey area drinking uh, that people don't feel worthy of help. So a lot of women who are in that situation, because it's so normalised, therefore feel, as you say, you're not that homeless person that's passed out on the park bench. So it's not extreme. It's like that spectrum you you talk about. If you you've got to accept or perhaps that you sit somewhere on it to be able to reach out for help. Whereas a lot of women like me stay at home for far too long, carry on bad habits, feeling anxiety because they don't feel like their problem is bad enough to seek professional help. When actually, of course, it is. Yeah. And the the thing is, I mean, the health, the mental health, the anxiety and the physical health, all the evidence these days, it's really stacking up, you know, just how bad alcohol is for us. I mean, the, the cancer, it's uh, seven different types of cancer, breast cancer particularly. I've had breast cancer and I know it was because of my, my heavy drinking. And I think, you know, the key's got to be education, really. And the UK... Well, they're certainly better than, than here in that they, they talk about these low-risk limits, don't they, which is 14 units a week, which is tiny. I mean, that's a bottle and a half yeah. of wine a week. I mean, I was putting that away in an evening. So really, drinking more than that tiny amount is, um, is going to damage your mental or physical health eventually. It's not going to happen overnight. You know, in my case, it took decades, but my health was, you know, severely compromised in the end. And I think that that might be the answer to get people away from this, oh, I'm not homeless yet. You know, if you're drinking more than a bottle and a half of wine a week, then just, you know, watch it. And what I say to people is um, just take a break, you know, stop drinking for a month. And if you can do it, no problem, you're probably fine. But if you can't get through a month without alcohol, without gritting your teeth, then you really need to make some changes. And I think, yeah. you know, that might be the answer to, to get more education out there. And that, that's what we try to do. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So you say four years into parenthood, that's when you, you stopped. So, so talk us through that process when you finally realised you'd had enough. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. Well, so I was trying moderation, of course. I, I was struggling of being, a, I felt like I was being a bit of a crappy parent when I was hungover on those days, but I still couldn't tear away from my personality of being that fun time girl and I still wanted to, to go and let my hair down at weekends. So I carried that on and then after my second child was born, she was tiny and she had a few feeding problems and all those sorts of other things that run alongside of being a new parent. And six weeks after she was born, even though I promised myself that I was going to do better and do moderation and all that sort of thing, I went out and got hugely drunk when she was six weeks old, made a bit of a fool of myself just down at my local bar. I mean, I was home by 10.30. It wasn't any drama involved. It was the most undramatic evening of my life, I think. There were no fingers blown off anyway, that was for sure. And, yeah, so I woke up the next day full of fear, anxiety, guilt and shame again, and I just, I had absolutely had enough of it. It had gone on for years and I just thought, oh, my God, I don't know whether I'm this person anymore. I don't know who I am and I don't want to be like this anymore. And I remember, 
you know, plodding out to my husband in a lounge in a dressing gown, realising that I couldn't stop this problem on my own. I didn't really realise that I had a drink problem then. I think I just thought, gosh, I'm a binge drinker that can't seem to stop. But I hadn't ever said to myself, you've got a problem with alcohol. It took me a few weeks of therapy before I actually admitted to sitting on that spectrum somewhere because I think in my brain was so wired in that way that I just thought I will still be able to have a drink. I will still be able to have a drink throughout my life. I couldn't imagine a future beyond the bottle. So there within lie the problem, I think. Yeah, yeah I yeah. was exactly the same. Uh, I spent 10 years trying to moderate because I couldn't imagine life without alcohol. I thought, well, how dreary would it be? So I kept thinking, well, I'm a strong person, you know, I always achieve my objectives. I'm going to control this. So I looked up those safe limits and I thought, oops, OK, <laughs> that's my nightly, yeah. my nightly quota. I have to stretch it out through the week. And I would manage for maybe two weeks, three weeks, just white knuckling it, you know, being quite miserable all the time, obviously. But then I'd have a night and I'd drink till blackout and I just couldn't sustain it. But bit, rather than just ditch the stuff, I went on doing that, you know, for a decade, really. And, and one, you know, my self-esteem was on the floor because I kept thinking, I saw it as a personality trait. You know, I've got no willpower. What is wrong with me? Why can't I drink like my husband, you know, who just has a glass of wine and then goes on and does something else? So I was in this really difficult mental space. And when finally I got you, like you, you know, I thought, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. Um, then I found peace somehow. You know, it's so much easier to ditch the stuff completely because it's an addictive drug after all. You know, you don't hear about people moderating cocaine or heroin. So I certainly couldn't moderate alcohol. But once I'd stopped, I found it much easier. And of course, I had to work out how how I did it. And that's what I wanted to ask you, Vicky. How did you manage to stop? Well, that, that day I just decided that I needed an an outside source to to you know intervene because I, I couldn't do it on my own as I said yeah like you I was it had been so long and so much pain and trauma involved in my going on in my brain so yeah I actually would have loved to have gone to like a temple in Tibet and or you know gone to the gone to the jungle and done ayahuasca or something like that that would have been cool but I had two little kids at home so that wasn't possible I I actually just phoned up a local therapist and uh, I got a lady on the phone and just said oh I've got a little bit of a binge drinking problem thinking I'm you know she might laugh me off the phone but she said oh yes I see people like you all the time see you on Monday and that was that so I had 12 weeks of therapy um and where I learnt what I was made of, really. Cracked, cracked my head open and, and went back in time and worked out why I was a big binge drinker, why I was a people pleaser, which was a huge thing, mm. which I'd never really considered. I was really trying to please others by being entertaining. And, I'd, and somewhere along there, I kind of fell through the cracks and forgot that I mattered in the whole scenario, which definitely happens a lot with these drinking stories is that somewhere that you forget that you matter and that, that your entertainment for other people is, is more important. And, yeah, so learning all of those things was absolutely eye-opening and really learning my reasons why and that doing those lists and all of those things. And I was able to see that, yes, I, I did sit on that spectrum. It, it wasn't extreme as it could have got, I guess, but I was definitely glad to be out. And as you say, the feeling of going... 
yes, I probably am some sort of alcoholic. It was like a weight was lifted off my shoulders. I mean, it was like more off my chest, actually, if I'm honest. It was like like a, a big ball of anxiety was ripped out of my chest and thrown in the river. Like it was an amazing feeling. I remember doing like leprechaun jumps. My husband would pick me up from the therapist office and he'd be like, are you all right? I'd be like, oh my gosh, I've just learned the most amazing things about myself. I mean, it does sound very self-indulgent sometimes, therapy. But if that self-indulgence just for that short period of time can have ripples throughout your family for generations to come, it is so bloody worthwhile. And some people get, you know, embarrassed about talking about themselves for hours on end, which you can probably tell I didn't very much. <laughs> I quite liked it. But actually, it is so rewarding just just having someone else to explain your thoughts is is the best thing you can ever do for yourself. Absolutely, just that reflection back. And I think when you sit with somebody like that, um, you just, things start making sense to you, don't they? Because you're reflecting and the power of that person's listening has an effect on your thoughts. And no, I don't think it's, it's self-indulgent at all. In fact, I would say that when we stop drinking, we, we start to get to know ourselves. Because I read somewhere that your emotional maturity stalls at the age when you start drinking heavily. So I thought, well, I was 18 for a long, long time, you know, because we just numb our feelings, even good feelings. You just numb everything. So you never learn how to deal with them. So there's no personal growth going on there. So, yeah, I think that that's hugely important to really delve and, and talk deeply about ourselves. And we... We do recovery coaching and we, we say to people, you know, our role is not only to, to help you to, to ditch the drink, but we want to move on with you and, and help you to find more purpose and meaning in your life. You know, there's there's got to be a deeper purpose than entertaining others as the party animal, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I thought it was really good that I could down a pint. You'd probably know, Jenny, what snake bite and black was. It was like a cider with with like black currant and beer. And I used to be able to down that quicker than anyone else at the university I was very briefly at. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I thought, yes, this is it. I am the champion of the world because I can down a pint of beer quicker than anybody else. I mean, surely my life has got more purpose than that. <laughs> Absolutely. So three years now, three years alcohol-free. Congratulations. Yes. Did you go yeah, back to you. day one ever or once you were in it, you stayed there? No. Yeah. Yeah, well I done. was done. I was so done when I, when I, you know, that day, that lead up to that day, the mental torment, you know, drinking caused me mental health issues at the end of the day. That's really what it was. It, it caused the mental equilibrium in my brain to be very askew and caused me real, you know, really horrible thoughts and negative, you know, negative stuff going on in my head. It, it just was just the end of it was like a relief. And I think people ask that a lot, you know, did you ever go back to a day one? It's like, no, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't. Why would I? Because I know that alcohol and me are not a good combination. So there's no chance of me ever, ever drinking again. I'm pretty confident. Obviously things happen. You know, if somebody died close to me or something terrible happened, you know, I could never say no. I don't know what happens in the future. But I hope I would never pick up a drink again. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that too. I always say I'm not sure I've got another recovery in me because it's hard to do what we've done. You know, it takes uh, yeah. it takes a lot of tenacity and and strength, really. So, what about your kids? Has there been change in the relationship? They were pretty tiny when uh, you were drinking a lot. So, 
I mean, they're still tiny now. I had a, a lovely little baby at 42, so he's two years old now. Um, he was like a little sobriety surprise, which was lovely. So <laughs> my kids won't know me as a drinker, which is actually a lovely thing. I mean, I grew up in a party where a, a party, well, pretty much I grew up at a party. <laughs> my parents were huge parties, so our house was always full of booze and, and love and laughter. It wasn't a terrible home to be in. It was a lovely home to be in, but... My house will be definitely a bit different. There won't be as much fancy dress or karaoke, but it will still be just as fun, I hope. It's just a different kind of fun where we all go to bed at about nine o'clock. <laughs> yeah, likewise. But then I get up at 5 five a.m. and I love mornings. So it's it's all about reconfiguring your, your life, isn't it? Yeah, I'm proud of the fact that they won't know me as a drinker, to be honest. I mean, that's a nice thing. They won't ever have to see me stumbling around or, you know, feeling awful or... I always say this whenever I'm on podcasts and things is that the alcohol doesn't make me a perfect mother. I'm not saying that at all. It just makes me a really present one and it makes me someone who is available. I still shout at them. I'm still crap sometimes. I still feed them food I shouldn't do and shout and do silly things. It doesn't, it doesn't change that. I mean, I, I try and do better with my parenting because I don't drink, but it doesn't make me perfect. But it definitely means that my children are feeling my love again. And, you know, that's that's an important thing. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Absolutely. And let's talk about social pressure. Do you, do you have any in your circle of friends or do they all know that you, you don't drink these days and you're happy with that? Well, one of the things that I did when I was questioning my drinking in that four years was I actually moved from Sydney up to north of Brisbane. And actually, I don't realise it then, but that was a huge benefit for me because I made new friends that didn't drink as much as my old friends did, perhaps. And that was useful because I didn't feel that pressure. And actually, that was one of my biggest sobriety surprises was the people that I thought would go, oh, come on, what's wrong with you? you you're not an alcoholic. You just like, you know, you're just a binge drinker. All of those people that I thought were going to give me a hard time are now the ones giving me a pat on the back. Because I think people are intrigued by people that give up drinking because people don't do it. You know, you're swimming up river. You're like a salmon going against the flow when you give up drinking, especially in social situations. So I am ready for the, for the you know, narky comments. I'm ready prepared with a few... You know, none of your business. I used to have excuses like I'm driving or I'm on antibiotics or those sort of things. So I couldn't be bothered to, you know, to tell the truth. But nowadays, I really just say it's none of your business because what I put into my body is is not the business of somebody else. It's my choice. And and I don't really care what anyone thinks about me. But that has taken a while. Mm Yeah, I always say it's not our responsibility to make other people feel comfortable about their drinking. <laughs> That's Oh yeah, that is can you email that to me because that is absolutely <laughs> brilliant. I need that one. Because it isn't. No. That's their problem. Yeah, I know it's it's their problem. It's confronting for them because therefore I'm sober around them and I'm aware of their drinking. They don't want to be judged. I mean, I know what it was like. I hated sober people when I was drunk because I didn't want anyone remembering something that I couldn't remember. Like I didn't want people telling me like terrible dance moves I was doing or who I went home with so I didn't want them near me so yeah I know what it's like sober people were annoying are annoying when you're drunk so I have become the annoying sober person (laughs) I'm actually thoroughly enjoying yeah me too it's great fun isn't it so many good one-liners you can come out with (laughs) yeah 
So, yeah, I thought it was interesting when you said you, you moved up to, to Brisbane and, and that helped you because what you've done is just as your identity was as a party animal, now your identity is a, a kind of sober mom or a sobriety advocate and it's a complete complete turnaround. And then people just accept that that's, that's what you're like. You're this kind of mad sober woman and <laughs> that, yeah. that's okay. <laughs> I think you've pretty summed up my reputation right there. <laughs> So talk to us about your podcast. I just love the name Sober Awkward because I felt awkward for years. I've just about got over it at nearly six years, but it's it's awkward, isn't it? Yeah, so we did have a few names for the podcast, but that really was the one that fitted both of us. Lucy and I, she's the girl that I co-present with, co-host the, the podcast with. Lucy, I've only actually known Lucy for six months. We met at, I run a sobriety group here called the Sober Social for Sober Curious Women. We meet up here on the Sunshine Coast and it's a international Facebook group. So anybody can go and join that if you're in need of support. Lucy and I met through her website and through the social group and she was struggling with her drinking. And she said when she met me, it was the first person she met that was a sober person and was actually still quite fun. And I think that's really good inspiration for some people because they just presume you're going to be boring. But as I met Lucy, she's so going through the first hundred days of sobriety. A lot of the things we talked about were those awkward situations, the things with like, you know, going out for the first time, being called boring, all of those really awkward moments where you just feel like you don't fit in anymore. So it came, it was the perfect, um, title for our podcast Lucy's done lots of podcasts before and I'm interviewed on them all the time it just came around at the right time so yeah we're really excited it's gone down really well so far and if anyone's feeling awkward in sobriety it's a good podcast to listen to (laughs) yeah yeah it's great um yeah the awkwardness I I don't know if you're into um the limiting beliefs theory have you read the naked mind Annie Grace yeah 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 you know she talks about all these limiting beliefs we have and I I really identify with that because I would as I said in my conscious mind I'd be I've got to stop this yet then I my subconscious would say to me but you're going to lose all your friends you know how will you have fun how will you relax this kind of thing and that's because we have these limiting beliefs that we need alcohol to have fun and of course that's the social pressure that's made us believe that and the billions of dollars that are spent on on advertising of course and the wine yeah. industry having particularly targeted us women we've all been brainwashed so i think in a way we have yeah. to deprogram ourselves and the only way i managed that was uh, first of all i thought surely i can have fun without drinking alcohol and then i just forced myself to socialize sober for months and most of the time i had a terrible time i didn't enjoy it at all i was so awkward i would run home after half an hour sometimes but gradually i got the hang of it and it got easier and easier so you have to almost deprogram yourself i think until your subconscious accepts yes you can have fun with us yeah so it's um, i think that's That's definitely our message on the podcast. I mean, our motto is feel the awkward and do it anyway. And what we're saying is like, do it and you might not enjoy it, but then do it again and then do it again and do it again until it doesn't feel awkward anymore. And And it won't. It won't feel awkward. And the more confident you become in your sobriety, the more... Of a, of a good time you can have. Your interactions will be so much more, you know, real and and f- more full. Your life will become more full because what you're doing is, is really you're in the moment, whereas before you've just been in oblivion. 
So yeah, it's hugely it's hugely challenging, but it is it's worth the effort. Vicky, I bet there's a few mums listening to this that are in that place where where you were. I mean, my my son is forty now, but even I was doing the the mommy juice thing, you know, in the UK, I'd go to children's parties and, you know, the kids would be rushing around on their sugar high, the mums would be drinking wine, you know, it's 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 an old thing, this mommy juice. But if there's a, a young mum listening, you know, to this with her, her bottle of wine ready for the evening thinking, oh, you know, um, I've also had enough of this, how would you advise her to get started? Because that first step, I think accepting you've got a problem and reaching out for help those are the biggest things after that it's more practical things isn't it well I think also if, if you're questioning if you're sitting there and you're you're not just throwing the wine back if you're sitting there and questioning that drink and thinking why am I doing this what purpose has it got in my life anymore why can't why can I not stop once I start all of those questions I would say to any mum it means you're a sober curious woman it you know, it took me 18 months to, to hear that term into my sobriety. I didn't know it existed. But once I identified with that, it's not as a strong term as being an alcoholic. It doesn't, people don't like that label. So if you can identify yourself as a sober, curious woman, a sober, curious mother, it softens the blow a little. And you can have a look at that, find out about it, find out what it is and find out if it relates to you. There's a brilliant book by Ruby Warrington, This Naked Mind by Annie Grace. There's a whole community out there of people who are exactly like you, people who question their wine habit and not happy about their relationship, how wine is affecting their relationship with their children. And just knowing that there are people like you can sometimes be enough because I've never heard anyone or seen anyone say that this journey hasn't been worth it or that sobriety wasn't good. You never hear people saying that they would prefer to be drunk than sober. So I just think it's a matter of finding people that are like you, finding that thing like me and Lucy. She found something in me that she had needed in a really, you know, really low period of her life was just someone that she knew had a life beyond alcohol. And that can just really be the key to change something in your head. And for me now, you know, when there are cravings or if I was to be trying sobriety, in those moments when the kids are in bed and the sun's going down and you've got that moment where you'd normally fill with alcohol, my advice is is always to play the tape forward. You know, is it that one drink that you're going to have or is it going to follow on into four or five drinks and then make you feel like shit the next day? Really sit with that thought and go... Is this the right thing for me doing having you know, to me for me to do to have a glass of wine right now? And then just sit with it and then just go and put the bloody kettle on because that is gonna be so much more beneficial for everybody in the house, yeah. including the neighbours, because I know that I always used to put really loud music on after a few wines and start dancing around the living room, which I still do now, I must say, but maybe the music isn't quite as loud and I have clothes on. <laughs> but really it's about sitting with those feelings and trying to understand them and reaching out for support even if it's just an instagram page on sobriety or a website you mean go to my website drugmummysobermummy.com and you'll find out all the information on what it's like to question your drinking habit every saturday afternoon we open up our tribe sober zoom cafe it's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at janet at tribesober.com. That's janet, J-A-N-E-T, 
at tribesober.com and we'll send you an invitation. Yeah, I think reaching out is is everything because um, for those 10 years that I was trying to control my drinking, I was very ashamed of this problem and I didn't want to tell anybody. So I spent all that time thinking there was something dreadfully wrong with me. And when you meet yeah. other people that are in exactly the same place, it's a huge relief. And that's when you think, Absolutely. well, and then you find your role models, you know, like Lucy's found you. You think, well, if she can do it, she's pretty crazy. I can do it too. <laughs> yeah. That is so true, though. If I, if I can do it, I can. Anybody can, yeah. really. And it is so good. It's worth a try. So there you heard me talking to Vicky Vanstone. Let's pick out a few highlights from that conversation. Just like many of us, Vicky surrounded herself with other drinkers. So her binge drinking was pretty much normalised. And as the party animal, she enjoyed recounting funny stories from the night before. Things started to change for Vicky when she had her first child. She found that motherhood introduced an element of shame into the morning after, as she began to feel hugely anxious and just a bit guilty that she was struggling to look after the baby. So at the age of 34, she found herself becoming sober curious. Vicky and I both agreed that the Sober Curious movement is hugely helpful as it implies that we can get off that slippery slope before we hit rock bottom and see ourselves as an alcoholic. Vicky talked about the transition from independent party girl to stay-at-home mom and how it was a huge shock, as it must be for many women. She believes that that's where the mommy juice culture comes from that need for a release from the stress and the boredom. Motherhood is a tricky mix of mundane tasks and huge responsibility, which can be very hard to adapt to when we've just had ourselves to think about. Vicky believes that women need more information about the loneliness and the stress of motherhood to prepare them, because just as drinking alcohol is glamorised by the media, so is motherhood, which can make the reality even more of a shock. Vicky says that we need to avoid giving our kids the message that we're numbing them out with booze because they're just too annoying. We're going to lose that valuable connection. And Vicky and I both got stuck in our drinking because we just couldn't imagine life without alcohol. But of course, we both now know that it's much easier to quit than to try and moderate. Once we've crossed a line with our drinking, moderation is just not sustainable, however hard we try. Vicky got some help by going to a therapist. She started to learn more about herself. She learned that she was a people pleaser and that she needed to start valuing herself rather than trying to entertain her friends with her drinking stories. And when we stop drinking, we do start to value ourselves more. Coaching and therapy both help us to understand ourselves better and find more meaning and purpose in our lives. When Vicky finally accepted that she needed some help and reached out, she felt a huge relief and realised that many people have the same issue. Vicky now has a podcast of her own and she's called it Sober Awkward. And she has a great mantra to go with it. She says, feel the awkward and do it anyway. 
I think this is brilliant and that's exactly what I did for months to convince myself that it was possible to socialise sober. I went out again and again, socialised sober, felt thoroughly awkward, kept doing it, I kept doing it until it was fine. Vicky also has a blog called DrunkMummySoberMummy.com and a Facebook group. So if you are stuck in that mommy juice routine, then do check it out. We both agreed that although many people worry about their drinking, they actually don't reach out for help because they're not an alcoholic. They don't think they are bad enough to get help. But in fact, if your drinking is on your mind, then you should reach out. Identify yourself as sober curious. No one needs to label themselves anymore. As a sober curious person, you're just learning more about alcohol and what it does to your mental and physical health. And I guarantee the more you learn about alcohol and the harm it does, the less inclined you are to pour it into your body. Joining Tribe Sober is a great start to your sober curious journey. We put our new members on an alcohol-free challenge for a month with community and online support. Because if you can easily get through a month without alcohol, then you probably don't have a problem. But if you can't, or if you can't even contemplate a month without alcohol, then you do need to make some changes, and we can help you with that. So just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. And once you've discovered our warm and welcoming community and got started on your sober curious journey, you're going to wonder why on earth you waited so long. So that's it from me. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to follow us and share the podcast. See you next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.